Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Our needs were met. My child's needs were met. And so that, that changed something in me, like a kind of trust in the world at large. I, this sounds really corny, but the universe, you know, I trusted the universe and I trusted a kind of energetic wave that we can step into. I'm Jordan Kistner, and you're listening to Thresholds, a weekly series of free-ranging conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work, a moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterwards. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Quick note, I, Jordan, am taking a brief break from hosting this spring to work on some other projects. And while I am off mic, we are really lucky to have Mira Jacob occupying the interviewer seat. 
Mira is a novelist, a graphic memoirist, and an all-around brilliant mind and excellent conversationalist. She was our very first Thresholds guest, and I have never stopped wanting to listen to her talk. I also was excited by who she wanted to talk to for these shows. I'll be back later in the spring, but until then, Mira's got the host mic. So I first met Oglala, Lakota poet and activist Laylee Long Soldier, when we were teaching together in Virginia. I'd known her before, of course, and had whole passages of her 2017 poetry collection, Whereas, which was written in response to the 2009 Congressional Apology and Resolution to the Native Peoples of the United States. I had whole passages of that seared into my brain. But getting to know someone while you're teaching is pretty different, right? The program, which is at Randolph College, was in its first few years, and things were mushy, if you know what I mean, that kind of formative state where anything can happen. And most of us on the faculty side, which were almost entirely black and brown people, were trying to build a thing we'd never had ourselves. So to say that Laylee is the perfect partner in that is just a crazy understatement. She's wise, she's generous, and above all, she's a dreamer, someone who sees things on a kind of shadowy periphery and then pulls them into the light, right? Like just such an incredible, incredible thing to have when you're trying to build something that you've never had. She also operates on Laylee time, which you're going to hear in this interview, with a slowness and a thoughtfulness that demands the same of her listeners. It wasn't planned. It was unexpected. And I, at the time, I wasn't really interested in having children. I actually wasn't interested in being a mom ever. Um, I was in my early 30s. And um, so that happened. And I wasn't expecting it. And um, I think there was also another, I, I, sh- I should be careful saying I was totally, I felt whole. Uh, because part of also my reticence in becoming a mother was my own imperfections. I tend to be a perfectionist and I was afraid of the mistakes that I might make as a parent. I was afraid of heartbreak because I know that when you love another human being, you're in for a ride, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yep. It's hard. <laughs> Loving anyone is you're you're in for uh, a lot of work and the heart, uh, you know, breaking and tearing here and there. Um, and I wasn't sure that I really wanted to do that with a child. And I didn't want a child to have uh, bad experiences with me. <laughs> and then grow up and resent me, you know, all those things. So to me, it felt like a lot of drama that I I preferred to do without. I mean, it's also really funny because, yeah, what is, I mean, what is a bigger change to your life than having a a body in your body suddenly. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I loved that it was drama for you. I mean, it's pretty dramatic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean... You know, on that note, I've heard women talk about how much they love pregnancy and and, and I did not enjoy any of it. <laughs> I felt it was, I mean, this is terrible to say, but I felt like it was invasive. Um, I felt like 
I describe it as being in a car in the pa- in the driver's seat, but someone else is driving. Like in the movies, the <laughs> the women just have a big tummy, but they just look fabulous and so on. That was not my experience. I like exploded. My whole body got big. My boobs, my arms, my legs, everything was like, (laughs) I was like, what is going on? The whole process was not enjoyable to me. (laughs) I'm I'm with you in that club. Just so you know, I'm 100% in the, I did not enjoy pregnancy. I was not a beautiful pregnant person. I wanted to murder most of the people around me, which seemed very (laughs) antithetical to being pregnant. (laughs) Yes, but something did happen. A a change inside of myself did happen. And it, it came in a very practical way in the beginning. So what happened was um, at the time I was a new student. I was going to the Institute of American Indian Arts and I had just started in the writing program. And this was after a long journey to find the courage to go back to school. So that too, you know, to uh, have a baby was an interruption of something that I had just begun and was very important to me. Um, That changed things. But the practical part of it is I didn't have any money, any resources. My child's father and I were not married. And there were, you know, things with that part of life that I wasn't sure about. So All of it together, especially the money I worried about, like I didn't have anything. I wasn't prepared at all. And someone said something very beautiful to me. They said, don't worry. Children come into this world with their own abundance. It'll be okay. And I was like, oh my goodness. You know, I hadn't really, I never had anyone tell me that. And that really gave me a lot of, of buoyancy and hope. And so I found it to be true. When I had uh, my child, all the things, I mean, certainly I wasn't wealthy or anything, but all the things we needed were there. You know, the clothes, the food, we had a roof over our head. Our needs were met. My child's needs were met. And so that, that changed something in me like a kind of trust in the world at large. I This sounds really corny, but the universe, you know, I trusted the universe and I trusted a kind of energetic wave that we can step into. And that has translated now even into my own practice as a writer and an artist. For example, I am mostly self-employed. I do teach it the MFA program at IAIA, but that's not a full-time position. So mostly I am self-employed. So I don't have like a steady paycheck, let's say like some, maybe a professor, full-time professor or a night person who works in an office or something. But I have found that there's a kind of a wave. I can't explain it except that I can visualize it and I can feel it a place of trust that I step into 
And I say, I don't know exactly how I'm going to meet all my needs this year or next year, but things come my way and it happens. And I'm not a person that goes out and intentionally networks or <laughs> create, you know, it just, um, can I ask you something? Cause I'm so curious about this. Was there, when you were growing up, was there any sign of that abundance? Was it something that you saw around you? Was it something that you saw at one point in your life and, and sort of ebbed away or was it something that you had never seen before? I mean, I'm curious about, cause, because it's a transition, right? And, and believing that that's there. Even when you say that to me, even when you said the thing, a child is born with its own abundance, like the warm hand that I felt over my heart at that moment, just because I, I feel so afraid all the time about, about being enough for my child and is it going to be okay? And, and that kind of, the way that that reassured me felt so deep. I can't imagine what it was like to hear that when you were just starting out and so nervous. And I guess I'm curious. In your life growing up, when you were growing up, was there abundance? Was there was there portions of abundance and scarcity? I'm curious what that was like. Well, I grew up uh, with a single mom. And my dad uh, was not really in the picture. He had issues. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> and he was... Um, I think it's okay for me to share this because he he shares it uh, himself. But he, when I was young, he was incarcerated for most of my childhood. And he was in and out uh, of the picture. But um, there were, he struggled a lot as a young man. And I share that openly, actually, as a celebration, because he's at a very different place now. And he worked really hard uh, through certain um, struggles and so on. So now he's in his 70s. He's a painter. He's painted his whole life. Uh, he also lives with that sense of trust that his ne needs will be met. My mom was a single mom. She worked long hours. Um, Where were you living? Uh, we moved a lot. Um, I grew up mostly in the Southwest in the Phoenix Valley and in the Four Corners area. So that's where I grew up. And things were not abundant. <laughs> so we, um, yeah, it was like a privilege, for example, to eat out and to do certain things. So um, I grew up with that sense of like, I suppose, scarcity. But I say that with a lot of care and respect for my mom because she was really doing her best to, um, you know, make ends meet and to provide on her own. Yeah, so that's the background that I come from. And so having a child, I was worried. I didn't want, I wanted something a little different. I wanted a little more. For my kid and then when I got pregnant I did not have more <laughs> I was not prepared so but things um, have been okay I mean we're like I said we're certainly not wealthy but we have our needs are met
always appreciated when I talked to you is you had a you had a full life um, before you came into writing and your success in writing. And I'm I'm talking about obviously the the beauty of the poetry itself, but also it's taken you all over the world. It's taken, you know, it's kind of it's blossomed in this really um, interesting way. You've had a kind of beautiful and spectacular career. And these don't seem to be things that were really on the horizon at the moment that you got pregnant. Were they? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, no. Yeah. When I, the moment I got pregnant, I was in my, as I said, my first year in undergrad. And at that time, I was struggling with even how to write a poem. So, and I want to say, like the first four years of my undergrad, I wrote really, really, really awful, awful poems. Really? Yeah. They I can't imagine like, you writing awful oh poems. My, it took so. <laughs> it took so long. Yeah. It. Took what was so, that about? <laughs> like, why do you think that was happening? Okay. First of all, I'm gonna. I'll step back. Uh, a little bit with with my relationship to language, which actually has been a lifelong thing, in addition to sound. Um, one of the funny things about my mom is growing up, I attribute this to her, her way of creating conversation and having fun. It, she liked to read a lot and she would sit and say, what do you think the difference is between um, overcast and cloudy? Like she would, or, you know, like two different, but it was often philosophical kind of cons considerations. And so she would sit there and like, in all earnestness, ask other people what they thought. <laughs> what they thought the difference was between certain words or what certain words meant and the layers. And that was fun for her or interesting. And so I grew up without realizing it, thinking in that way. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is before I um, started my studies in undergrad, I worked at the Indigenous Language Institute for um, 11 years. So um, I was working, I, I was the assistant to the executive director. So we worked with different communities who are working to um, create language programs and um, keep their languages healthy, uh, their native languages healthy. So um, that was also a big part of my life and my way of thinking about language and inter engaging and interacting. And so I had all of that, you know, a, a real interest, in, um, a real interest in language and thinking about particulars and so on. But poetry is a whole other, other thing. And it took me a long time to sort of chisel through and chip through something in myself and exterior to sort of 
get to that place of, I would say, creative liberation. I try to tell this to, I try to um, share this with my students. I really do feel, because of my experience, that creativity is a skill. It is not, I think there's a, a kind of false belief we have that it's always there. Mm-hmm. Or that it's something that is um, children, we associate that with children, imagination and creativity. And so we, we take it for granted as if like, oh, you know, children have it. We, can, we, we always have it. We have it within us all the time. Right, right. Like a spice on the shelf that you could pull down and use yes. at any point. From my experience, it is a skill when we get older, uh, a way of tapping into something with our, within ourselves. But it is, it is, as they say, a practice, right? You have to learn the ways to access it and to use, use it and to keep it vibrant and keep it alive. And so it took me four years of undergrad to actually, like I said, to reach that place of liberation creatively. And then all of a sudden it was like in my last semester of undergrad, I often picture it like driving a car. So all these things I learned about writing poems, suddenly, you know, it's like, when you're learning to drive, you're very self-conscious and you're like pressing on the brake and you're doing the, the, the gears and you're looking in the mirror and everything is like so conscious and deliberate. And then at some point it becomes a little bit like integrated and you begin to do it all at once and not think too hard. And that's what I had to do was get to a place of not thinking, overthinking. That's what I should say, overthinking. So all the way up through undergrad, I was really overthinking, overworking my pieces. Uh, They were very dry, very... um, This is so familiar, everything you're saying. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. because I do feel like it's sort of, it's sort of, I don't know if it's, it's the way everybody becomes an artist, but I feel like there's sort of the, there's the part where you love the thing so you do the thing right mm-hmm. and then there's the part where you go to learn more about the thing and it becomes work and in the work because like the self-consciousness happens where this thing that you were formerly so able to access becomes a series as you were saying of like gear shifts and checking in the mirror and and making sure and being very aware of of your own body and your own peril and are you going to be okay you know all of these other things that aren't just doing the thing you love. Mm-hmm. I love what you say about creativity, about you, about needing to work at it. Like, yes. what do you do to work at creativity? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, do you have, do you have some answers here? What do you do? Okay. This is going to sound so stupid because it sounds like the opposite of work. It won't. I promise. <laughs> We're all different, right? So it's, it's about knowing myself. So, so I have a, a kind of routine or practice that helps me. Uh, first of all, this is why I said it sound it will sound like the opposite of work, but it's something I have to factor in in order for me to access that place 
where I write with a kind of ease that is also, um, it's an ease with a kind of um, care and formality as well. I don't know how to explain it. Mm -hmm. I, I need to be in that place of ease. So I have to, when I begin working, I have to watch like mindless videos, like um, cute animal videos on YouTube <laughs> yes, or <laughs> yes, reality shows. I love all my housewife shows. Um, Lily, I love I this. I love this. Okay. I have to. <laughs> yeah. I believe you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So why? Tell me what happens to your body when you're watching those? Like what happens to your brain? Everything relaxes. Yeah. Like I'm, everything relaxes. I'm not thinking. I'm not worrying. It can't be news. It can't be politics. It can't be stuff like that. It has to be like something really mindless. And like, I'm just feeling and, and in a place of ease and enjoyment, you know, and then I do that for like an hour. I work late at night usually. So usually around like nine o'clock, I start, uh, I dive into the videos, the relaxing videos. I put on um, coffee or tea. And then usually after an hour or so, hour and a half, I'm ready to, I, I call up a, a document on my laptop and I start tinkering. And it's, it's, it's just tinkering. It's just like, um, approaching it lightly and then and then it begins and then I begin moving in a bit deeper and the night starts getting the house is quiet the night comes and I can work like that for hours and like it's you know three four five hours pass just really quickly but um that is part of my process. I have to completely relax. And so I love this, honestly, because I feel like I feel like a lot of us do some version of this, but sim just berate ourselves the whole time. It's like, you're not doing the work. You're not doing the work, right? You're watching another llama video, whatever. Some reason yeah. I really like llama video. Anyway, right? You and mm -hmm. you and you sort of hate yourself in that moment. But what you're actually saying, which is so honestly liberating is that's what it takes for you to get into your creative practice yes yeah totally I have to like be uh empty of all of the all of the daily concerns and societal concerns even to a certain degree and and be free of free of all of that and then there's some and then there's like a deeper, a deeper lele that, that is allowed to come. I wrote a whole book critiquing the um, congressional gesture of apology. To native people so you would say that that is a very direct and um, political kind of response and work um, but it came from pure emotion like just being just tired 
and fed up with the status quo. And most of those pieces that are responding to that governmental document and some of the issues, I also have other historical pieces. A lot of those things still come from that very emotional place of the daily life and what it is to be who I am and to have a child and uh, so forth, living in the here and now. I think the thing that that is really interesting to me about what you're saying, though, is that you have to let go of all of that to to return to it with what were you calling it deeper lately? Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I guess, <laughs> yeah. No, it's just super mm-hmm. interesting because it's sort of it's it's almost um, the way you describe it almost mimics the way that you talk about accepting the that a child can have abundance, right? Mm-hmm. Like riding this sort of deeper wave, this mm-hmm. this feeling, trusting it. As I think, I don't always know what's going to come out, so. Almost all artists, you know, say that they don't know exactly what's going to happen when they first begin a piece, whether it's visual or, you know, a written work. It it is a trust, and I think that's that's also what has been pivotal for me. That it, that creative process, it translates to so many other areas of life. Um, like what I have, okay. So I, uh, but I, I don't want to reveal anything too personal. Okay. So I'll try to say it in a general way. So this is a way that it translates to other areas of life, the creative process. So I have a, a niece who is in a relationship and she has, she's facing all of these big questions because we know what young love is and also when you're looking at committing to someone, you have all these big questions, you know, and now I'm like the old auntie. So <laughs> uh, we have coffee every week or two and um, talk and, and she's trying to do everything right. Um, and sometimes um, even though she's trying, there's like things that, she worries about, you know, and, but I told, you know, so I, I was just telling her, um, this idea of of being an artist and making things. And I told her, you know, when I auntie, when auntie makes something like when I, whether I'm working visually or whether I'm writing a poem, I accept from the onset, it's not going to be perfect. It is not. I know that none of my pieces are perfect. And actually in the process of making it, it is sometimes very messy. And there's a a kind of uncertainty I have to be okay with because that uncertainty also lends itself to surprise, you know, Um, to, you know, it, you know, there can be windows or doorways that open into something I had not expected. And it's very exciting. But oftentimes, when a reader or a viewer uh, sees my finished work, they don't know all the crazy mess that went <laughs> into making it. You know, I worked on a visual piece last year. And 
for like a week, going to the deadline, the week or week and a half before the deadline, I was in my pajamas all day. I was like, um, I had my aunt came over to help me work on it and my child and I had like bad breath and I had not showered and I was embarrassed and I told auntie I'm so sorry I'm disgusting right now like but we were all sitting there trying to finish this this piece I was working on and we got it done and in the end we're we're all so happy with how it turned out we are but I'm like, oh my God, if anybody saw me in the process, they would be horrified. They're like, you're a gross beast, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, don't come around us again. So I use that as maybe comfort to my niece, like understanding that anything in life, like view it as, as a work of art, this relationship you're creating the process is not going to be all perfect, you know, lining everything up and making sure all the family is happy and making sure this and that. There's going to be some messy stuff, but you're going to give it 100% and just trust. Again, riding that wave of trust is going to be okay because you are doing it with your very best intentions. And you're doing it with all of who you are. So, um, and you certainly don't mean any harm to anyone, you know. Um, so uh, that's what I mean by these things translating, like the art, artistic practice, that idea of trust translating into other areas of life. Yeah. I'm so curious um, because you had this this person sort of say this this miraculous thing to you about um, a child comes with its own abundance, and then you have the child itself. And when do you like? At what point did you did you feel like you understood that sentiment? Because it it sounds like you live by it now, which is incredible, and it's such a gift to pass on to a niece. And you know, it's such a gift also, even as you're talking about working with an auntie. And is it your child that also came over to help you do this? Like working yeah, together, we were all three incredible. <laughs> Right, busting our buns to get it done. Yeah, <laughs> like what an incredible thing to also have that community and sort of bring that abundance to a project, right? All of yourselves. But is there a point at time where you, where you can remember that 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 thing that was said to you sort of it made sense suddenly? Oh, immediately. I mean, if I go back to that moment in time, for example, when um, my you know they had the. Um, what is it called? Um, shoot, the party for a new baby. What is that called? Oh, um, uh, <laughs> you said it and I'm like, I don't know, a birth party, but it's not. It's, uh, I'm a writer. Yeah, I so am I. I'm a writer that's also had a child. I don't know what it's called. The ritual, the baby ritual. <laughs> yes, the baby thing. <laughs> baby shower, baby shower. Baby shower. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, that's a great example. Like, even just that, immediately, like, we had uh, my friend gave a baby shower, and there were pe friends there that I didn't even expect to be there. And they came with so much love, and they brought so many things that I needed. Um, 
above and beyond what I needed. And certainly for months and months, you know, we didn't have to, uh, we, we didn't have to want for anything, you know, baby had everything. And that was pure, just pure love and generosity um, from the world around us. And I was so humbled, like I said, because I even had friends, you know, friends that they were friends, but I didn't know that they loved and cared for me in that way. So that was so sweet. And I think maybe that's it, the gist of it, that in very practical ways, I was shown evidence of this kind of abundance. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have moments now? Because I'm, I'm thinking also one of the things that's sort of occurring to me as you're talking about this, I was, I think what I learned as an immigrant to this country when I was growing up is if, if there's going to be anything for you, um, you have to be very, very, very good. And maybe you'll get a scrap. That was just what, what I learned as an immigrant. And then when I moved into my work life and specifically as a writer, especially, you know, in the earlier part of my career, there was this idea of if, if you're a writer and a person of color, that meant that you were the one that was allowed into the room. But inherent in that were the many of you that did not get into the room. So there was, there was always a scarcity model, right? So much of the work that I've done since that time and also the work that I did with you at Randolph and the work that I am really devoted to is this idea of undoing that idea um, of the scarcity, right? And I'm so curious because every once in a while it like comes up from the grave to just bite me in the ass. Like every once in a while I'll be going around my life and I'll be like, I got this one. I got this one. It's not scarcity. Move through the world with abundance. Give more, you know, this kind of most of the time I'm okay. And then suddenly it will like come out of the grave and grab me by the ankle. Do you ever have those moments anymore where the scarcity gets to you? I wouldn't call it scarcity, but I did relate to what you said. I mean, certainly I do understand this idea of the the scarcity or being the only one in the room and so on. So that's something that I have definitely experienced. But I also um, work in also spaces where I'm surrounded by incredibly creative, intelligent uh, Lakota, Lakota people and native people. And so I don't always feel so isolated or what have, like I do feel surrounded by and accountable to my community. But what I do really understand also is the idea of being good, being good and working super hard and extra hard um and an example is this last semester i um went to law school i applied to law school at the university of new mexico and so um that was fall 2022 and um well i loved and i wanted to study indian law and the reason I wanted to do that was to strengthen my writing practice because I felt like I'd gotten to a place in my work where I could not go further without having certain knowledge. I mean, within all 
with my own sense of um, integrity, you know, like there's certain information I need to have, certain knowledge. So I said, I'm going to enroll in law school. I need to know this. Um, but when I started, you know, because I'm a single parent, I teach, I take care of an elder, I have projects and I travel. So going to law school was like one step too far. It was like, I almost put myself in the hospital. Wow. <laughs> it was like, mm-hmm. And the stress and trying to do everything, it was, it was just way too far uh, for me, for who I am. But so I had to really come to this place. I had to make a decision for my own health and for my family. Um, and I just had to accept this is not the right time or um, I just cannot do it right now. And that was very, I mean, I cried. It was really hard to accept that in myself because I think that I come from this place where I have to work hard, I have to achieve, and I have to do everything like maximum. And so um, I think that as I get older now, that was one thing in the decision that I made not to continue. I had to come and talk to myself and say enough is enough I don't have to like this kind this this sort of mindset of having to prove myself over and over and over it needs to stop it's not healthy it's not healthy for me um it's not healthy for my family. Like I want my fam, my kid to feel like I'm there, you know, like I get one chance at, at this, you know, at this thing of parenting, you know, and I had to step back also and appreciate what I'm already doing and what I have done and the practice and the work that I do now. So that, in that regard, I, I kind of relate to what you're saying, you know, this being good and working hard. And, but I'm, I think I'm not willing to do that anymore to, to the degree of almost self-punishment. I, I cannot stand it anymore. I can feel it when I start to do that yes. to myself. Yes. So it's untraining myself. Absolutely. I will not. So, yeah, I'm learning. I'm learning as I go. I mean, there's so many things that are connecting in my brain here because, you know, even when we were first talking and you were talking about with your um, mother and you wanted to say with care that you you were feeling scarcity, but you wanted to say that with great care because your mother was really trying, right? And what I wanted to, you know, immediately I thought, yeah, because we're somehow taught that 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 all we have to do is try and strive and try really, really hard. And if we still are feeling the discomfort of this world or of being in, you know, in America, not having choices, then it's something that we haven't done right, right? It's somebody's fault. And even now when you're talking about this kind of um, wanting to do this thing, and I, and, I, and I hear how important it was for you, but it also sounds like there was a certain moment in which, how do I say this? I think sometimes we strive as protection. Do you know what I mean? It's like a protection spell against all the bad things that can come. So it's like, if you keep accelerating, you're, you're going to be okay. 
we're too busy. We're diverted. We're over here doing, we're busy. We're occupied. Uh, So all the bad things stay over here (laughs) and leave us alone. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, how does it feel? How does it feel now? A few months, it's a few months away, right? From deciding not to do that, from stepping away. Yes. How do you feel about it now? Uh, I feel good. I feel okay with it. You know, um, I have a, and I think maybe part of it, part of it too, is um, the stage I'm in, in life as well. Maybe if I had tried this when I was much younger, and I didn't have the responsibilities that I have now, um, maybe I could have done it, you know, but um, I feel okay. I feel good about it. And I, actually have a another friend she's also a Lakota artist she's a visual artist and she accepted a um, teaching position at a university that was one one state away from where she presently resides and she too lives in an intergenerational home so she has her her parents and her children and her husband all in the same place and a vibrant art practice, a studio and um, studio assistance. And this opportunity came to teach at this university and she accepted it. And just the other day, she posted to everyone that she's not going to continue after one semester because she was commuting weekly back and forth, trying to make it all work. Um, And she realized that, you know, she has this, no one, and we were texting, because I said, I read your post, and I completely understand. And it's like, we, together, we understand that nobody else is going to make the work that we do. And there's, and it's, it's a nice thing to get to that place of honoring that, and to make that work, like her visual work, it takes months to make some of those pieces, like months. And it's same on my part, you know, to to um, do write some of the the things that I've been working on. Um, you know, it takes a lot of time and quiet um, space. So I think that um, that that's a I think that is also part of um, my age and the stage I'm in too. Like I'm learning like, oh, okay, this is where I'm at. And it's okay to uh, just honor that and and stay the steady course. Just keep working on it, you know. Yes, and doing the thing that only you can do, putting into the world right. only the work that you can put in, right? Yeah. Incredible. I also, one of... Um, it's really interesting because if you're sort of thinking of the two ends of this, the idea of understanding that there will be abundance and also knowing your personal limits seem to go very hand in hand in this sort yeah. of beautiful way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as you're saying this, you know, because I'm also in this in this place of taking care of parents and taking care of children, it's it's there is something interesting about that, about understanding your limits in that place. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) it is, you know, it's also like, you know, I could sit here and say, oh, because taking care of an elder also is no small thing, 
but there's no complaints. I mean, it's important. It's valuable work uh, and time and care and love. And so this idea of abundance is not about success. So this American, a very American idea of success is not, is not interesting to me. So for me, it is about living a life that hopefully, hopefully, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now, I look back and I feel, I feel happy. I feel good about it. Thresholds is produced by Jordan Kistner and Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshawood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to our hosts at LitHub Radio. You can find more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website, thisisthresholds.com. Don't forget to rate and review our show at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.